0: Thanks, Raquel. Good morning. How's it going? All right. I'm good. Um, so if we've not met before, if, if you're new to Grace City, um, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor here, just one of a handful of leaders who are part of this church. And um, yeah, go ahead, clap. It's not awkward. Um, So I've been out of town for a few weeks, so I'll just say that, um, and it's really, really good to be back. My family and I took a little family trip to South Africa. My wife, who is downstairs uh, serving the kiddos, is South African, so occasionally we save up a small fortune and fly all five of us to the other side of the world. It's really hard, you know? It's, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, family first, family first, until you're, it's like, well, new car, trip to see family in South Africa. So we picked family. Yay. <laughs> um, but it was a really, really nice trip. Um, spent most of the time just hanging out with Shirley's parents and her, her brother and her sister and their families. Um, yeah, just on a little farm in the middle of a desert. They have... Her parents. When we say farmers in the United States, that means one thing. Uh, Shirley's parents are farmers in the Karoo. They have fourteen thousand acres of land. It's just like vast. They don't even call it acres. They kind of call it hectares or something weird like that. Um, Just a massive. Is that? I got a South African guy looking. Whoa! You're getting it wrong, bro. (laughs) I'm trying. Anyways, it's a big desert is what it is, and when you go out there, you can see, I don't know, you know, I'm sure you guys have been out in the middle of nowhere where there's virtually zero light pollution, and you can actually see, like, clusters of stars. You can see our galaxy. You can see nebulae um, up in the sky, and it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful, and it's really, really good for one's perspective, It just reminds you how small you are, how grand and incredible God is, um, and how much he loves us. That's, that's That's the intense paradox that is God's love. We are so, so small in this universe, and he is so big and so awesome, and he thinks about us. If that's not mind-boggling, I don't know what it is. That's, that's, that is the love of God. Um, so anyways, it gets one reflecting a little bit. And I, I didn't spend quite as much time just praying and you know doing prayer walks out in the felt and whatnot that I would have liked to. Um, but I did spend a little. And at one point, I, f- I felt quite strongly that God was, uh, was speaking to me, just really putting putting an impression on my heart, as we say, and it's for us. Um, So I want to share something this morning that I felt like God uh, said to me for us while I was wandering around out in the desert in the middle of South Africa a few weeks ago, Um, which means we're actually going to break our series a little bit. Um, if, If you've been coming here for a little while, you'll... No, we've been working through uh the book of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark. It's one of the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. And um, I think we basically made it up to about chapter 14, which means we're almost to the end. There's only 16 chapters in Mark. And we're gonna pause this morning, um, take a bit of a step back before we get to the cross, which is the last bit of Mark, I think it's important for us as a church just to remind ourselves, like, what, what are we doing here? Like, where's all of this going? Um, and how, how do we actually participate in a very real, personal, experiential way in who God is, what he has done, what he's doing in our lives and in this city? So I want, I want to talk vision a little bit this morning. You guys, you guys with me on that? Let's do it. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, if you're South African. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11 is where I want us to look this morning. It's a beautiful passage. Um, gosh, the Bible is riddled with, with passages that, I think, like encapsulate God's vision. For creation, like what is God up to in the world? In a world that's broken, in a world that's obviously not this perfect reflection of God's kingdom. We sang about that this morning. God, let your kingdom touch down. Let your spirit break out. Um, What does that look like? What is God's vision for when that actually happens? And I think this passage just, just encapsulates it so well. So here it is. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with with righteousness he shall judge the poor, that is, see justice done for the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy and all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful vision. The righteous branch comes forth. The root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. We said that the righteous king, the one who would come and restore the kingdom of God, would descend from this man Jesse, of the lineage of David, the root of David. That he would come forth, that he would issue a decree of righteous judgment, righteous judgment, Judgment, or he would see justice done where justice needs doing. And world peace would ensue. That's the picture. That natural enemies would begin to walk together. That those who would otherwise prefer to drop bombs on each other would become friends. Reconciliation would happen on an oceanic scale like the waters that cover the sea when the righteous one comes forth and issues the righteous decree. World peace would break out because the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. People around the globe will be reconciled to God and to each other. Creation itself will know the peace of God when the root of David comes. That's God's vision. You know, occasionally you you think about or long for world peace. It's what God has been dreaming about from day one. Shalom is what the ancients called it. The peace of God would reign when the Prince of Peace comes. That, of course, is Jesus. Now, recently, um, one of our leaders in the church, one of my staff members, I have a team of volunteer staff, um, he asked me, and we were walking to get some pizza, and he said, uh, Simon, what exactly is our vision again? Which is a great question, a slightly depress- depressing question because he's like one of our leaders, right? He's supposed to be able to like articulate this stuff for memory. Um, but he said, I kind of like know what it is. Um, I know it's about Jesus and it's about loving people and it's about sharing God's love with the world. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not bad. Um, but like, what is it exactly like, how, how, does, how do we do that? What, do, what does it look like on a day-to-day? Um, and that's the question that I'm asking myself when I read a passage like Isaiah 11. So that's, that's amazing. That's grand. That's inspiring to me. But like where do we fit in with that? How, practically speaking, how do we, number one, participate in God's vision, in a, in a way that's actually real. I was uh, up this morning, uh, just before the rest of the, my family, reading the Bible. Uh, Judah, he comes crawling out of his room. The kids all slept in a bedroom tent last night, which is never a good idea. They don't really sleep. Um, so Judah comes slinking out of this little tent, and uh, I'm reading my Bible and he's lying on the couch with his little broken arm. Little guy just broke his arm, had pins put in his elbow. Anyway, he's not even facing me. And he's, he's looking the other way, sort of head buried in the couch. And he rolls over and he says, Papa, is God real? You could tell he kind of been thinking about it. It's like, he, I thought he was asleep, but he's, he's lying there. Meditating on the deep things of life. (laughs) Papa, is God real? You ever ask yourself that question? Of course you do. Of course you do. Who doesn't? How is God's vision to be a reality in our lives? How can it feel real? How can we experience it? How can we participate in God's vision to see mass revival, reconciliation, peace break out across the globe? Like the waters that cover the sea on an oceanic scale. I love thinking of it in those terms. It's grand. But how do we experience it? How do we participate, at least at some level? And God's grand vision for the world and for our lives. Secondly, as a church, how do we share it with others? Because it's one thing to, to experience the realness of God and his vision for ourselves, but it's not meant to be hoarded. We're, we're meant to actually take part in this revival. Invite others to experience it uh, for themselves, and so what is our vision? I want to I talk about three aspects of how we as a church are meant to participate in and share God's vision for Portland and the world um, in, in three ways. And they are worship, family, and mission. Worship, family, and mission. And these are overlapping categories. Let's start with worship. Worship. Um, let me read one of my favorite passages um, in all of Scripture that is a vision of worship as it's currently happening in heaven, or at least will happen. I think I have this, this one on the screen. Yeah, Revelation chapter 5. If you guys ever read Revelation? I think in a couple months we're going we're gonna to deep dive into Revelation. If you're into that. Some of you are like, mm. It's about to get weird, isn't it? No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Verse 8. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is where the book ends. This is where the vision culminates. You know, both the gospels of Matthew and Luke, this is interesting not Mark, not John, but Matthew and Luke, the first, uh, the first and third Gospels in the New Testament. They end with the disciples worshiping the Lamb. That is, Jesus who was slain, who shed his blood to ransom humanity. It said that he came back from the dead, appeared to his mostly unbelieving disciples. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's how Matthew ends, Matthew 28. And that's where Luke ends as well. Jesus, who conquered sin and death, he shows himself alive to his disciples. And what do they do? They worship. They worship. What do you think about worship? As a community, this is where we start. When you encounter King Jesus, who we've been talking about for, I don't know what, it's been like six months now that we've been working through Mark. King Jesus, the living one, the one who conquered death, the one who had been foretold of the root of David, the king who was to come, the one who was to set the world right, to see justice done. He appears alive and his disciples worship him. Have you ever found yourself feeling compelled to worship Jesus? Now, undoubtedly, some of you are thinking like, eh, you mean like sing like what we did this morning? Maybe, maybe. But have you ever had an encounter with Jesus, a vision, perhaps, in such a way? that you feel compelled to throw your crown on the ground and say, I'm not king. You are the greater one. And we fall on our knees and we worship. Where did my nets go? There we are. What is worship? Well, I reckon we could say um, a lot of things about worship. We could preach a whole six-month series on worship. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Maybe I'll be able to get Hannah to do that. Hannah, you good? Okay. Well, you guys all heard it, right? That's a, that's a confirmed yes. Did we get that recorded? I would say, first and foremost, worship is adoration. Before it's anything else, it's, it's an acknowledgement of who God is, it's being captivated by His goodness, His beauty. When you encounter Jesus, the living God, the one who gathers with us when we meet together like this, when you experience him in a a deeply personal way for yourself, the logical response is adoration. He's awesome. He's good. He's the only one truly worthy to be worshiped. Anything else is just dangerous. It's surrender. I love that we've sung about surrendering this morning. Worship is a, I would say it's a spiritual but also practical way of expressing surrender to God. It's why oftentimes when you see worship depicted in scriptures, um, people are bowing, people are kneeling, people are throwing down their crowns. Oftentimes there's a lifting of hands. Because worship, it's it's a a posture, it's an attitude, it's a way of coming to God saying, "I, I... I need to put you in the place of worship. I need to step down off the throne. You know, we have, have a way of throning ourselves, crowning ourselves, wanting to be independent and the king and the ruler and the God of our own lives. But when we worship, it's a way of stepping back. It's a way of saying, no, God, I'm, I am not worthy to be worshiped. That would never end well anyway, but you are the worthy one. And I surrender to you. When we surrender to God, and to be sure, it's mostly it's a, it's a heart posture. but when we surrender to God and we begin to worship Him as king and us as not, something transformational happens within us. It's not just a sentiment. It's not merely an expression. It's, it's literally a, a, a transformational experience when we surrender, when we submit our will to our kings and we say something along the lines of, search my heart. See if there be anything in me that doesn't belong to you. Reveal it to me so that I can turn away from it and make me become more like you. God gives us his grace to empower us to become more like Jesus. Which is a great way to be. It's adoration, it's surrender. Thirdly, it's resistance. Something about worship, and this is slightly counterintuitive, but when we worship God, it's not merely a passive activity. It's like a protest. It's a, it's a resistance it's violent because when we surrender to our king, it's our king who fights for us. When we are still before our God and say, you are the greater one, vengeance belongs to you. You are, only, you are the only one qualified to judge righteously. And we know that you will. And so when we worship, when we bow to our king, we're asking him to fight on our behalf. And I want to emphasize that because I think for some of you, and I don't want to say guys, I don't think it's just a guy thing. As a man, though, I will say this helps me a lot. When I'm worshiping God, I struggle sometimes just to feel like, oh, wait, am I supposed to be like, what is this? Like love jams for Jesus kind of moment. Like, and, I, and I can kind of struggle to connect a little bit personally. But when I'm reminded that in worship among other things I'm also taking my stand, I'm entrusting my life, my family, my future, my dreams, my fears to a God who is much more capable and faithful than I am, it is an act of resistance. It is a, it's a way of declaring spiritual war. And we need to fight. We need to fight. I love the way, um, let me share this quote with you guys. I came across this recently. It's so good. Eugene Peterson, if you're familiar with him, he said this in Reversed Thunder Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically or sporadically. We worship so that we live in response to and from the center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there's no center, there is no circumference. People do not worship or swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world no steady direction and no sustained purpose there is no center there is no circumference there is no anchor for the soul we're just adrift in a meaningless universe worship brings us back to the center it keeps us rooted and grounded in god who's the only immovable, stable, faithful, dependable source being in this world. And so we worship. But something happens while we worship. And this is my second point. Talk about family. Something happens when we worship. When we're all kneeling before our king, surrendering to him, adoring him, taking our stand in him our king begins to look out over the myriads and the myriads and the thousands upon thousands of adoring worshipers. And he looks at us and he waits for one of us to glimpse up and he makes eye contact. And he says, you, come. And of course we're like, me? Yes, you come so we get up we begin to come close to our king who is our father and then he begins to look elsewhere and he makes eye contact with another and he says you yes you come it's like really awkward I'm making eye contact with people (laughs) come you hesitantly nervously get up and you begin to approach the throne of God and he continues to do this and he says come get up arise come and we realize that we're not just worshiping servants we are sons and daughters that God our king and our father invites to come to come close. He says, you don't have to worship from afar. It's right and proper that you would kneel before your king. He is awesome. It's right that we would fear the Lord. That's a very sane response when you come face to face with the most powerful being in the universe, God. But it doesn't just stop there. He says, arise and come Come before me. No, better yet, come sit with me. Come embrace me. Come rest in me. If you need to sit in my lap, come feel my embrace. And this deeply personal, intimate thing begins to take place as we worship our King. He invites us to approach him as sons and daughters. And then what happens? Next thing you know, there's no one out in the crowd. We're all up on the throne, sitting in the lap. We're seated in Jesus. As intimate with God as God the Son is with the Father. This is what we're invited into. A familial sort of relationship A father, daughter, father, son, intimacy with God. And the next thing you know, we're all sitting up here with God, worshiping and being intimate with our father, which makes us what? Family. Family. We're no longer just worshiping as individuals, doing our little spiritual thing in the crowd, We've all come close together. The closer I come to my king, the more intimate I get with my father, the closer I get to you, and you to I. And we realize that this is a family affair, that God isn't just looking for worshipers. He's looking for those who would worship their father. And the father is looking for those who would worship him, who would come close, who would respond to his call. This is how the book of Revelation ends it's the very last prayer in the whole Bible, come. The Spirit says to the church, come. And those who hear say to others, come. And we all say together, Lord Jesus, come. And there's this great coming together, and that is God's family. And that's part of the vision. That's part of the working out, the practical experience Of this grand oceanic revival that God is inviting us to be a part of. Family. Family. Family, what do you think about family, by the way? What do you think about family? Dysfunction. Dysfunction. Okay, we we all know where Ken's coming from. (laughs) All right, what do you think about family this week? How about that? What's that? Love and support, wonderful. Anyone else? Choice or a burden? I love my family. I reckon I'm a, I'm a family man. I like family. I'm enjoying being a father, enjoying being a husband. I love dreaming about, you know having grandchildren, forming family traditions. We're going to Cape Lookout for our third year in a row this summer. I think it's like going to be our family spot. and my, my wife and I love that. Family's hard. Family's hard. There's nothing as wonderful or as difficult as family. Some, some of us are so so very fortunate, so blessed to have been raised in like a physical family. I'm talking about like actual family, not spiritual family, to have been brought up in a, a wonderful, loving, functional, together family. And I think we all know like that's that's a, just a gift, an utter gift. Others of us, not so much. You say family and you think pain. It's hard. I want it, but I'm terrified of it. Because so far, it's just been a whole lot of pain. That's family. It's a lot of work. You know, um, Matthew 18, you don't need to go there. There's a, there's a popular little phrase there that Jesus says. You've probably heard it. Where two or three gather in my name, I am there with them. Have you ever heard that? And sometimes I hear people sort of throw that one out. Um, to be like, well, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. Because I just hang out with my mates on Tuesday morning, and we we wax spirituality and drink coffee, and Jesus is there with us because that verse says so. You, you clever theologian, you. <laughs> you know what the, the context is, though. Uh, there's, there's quite a broad context. He starts out by talking about children, and then he has this little sheep analogy. He says, "Here's how the father thinks about children." Um, it's like a shepherd leaving the 99 to go look after the one lost sheep. Beautiful. God is, is all about seeking the lost. Those who don't have a family, those who are on their own, wandering, ostracized, um, God goes after them. God loves the one. And then he goes on to talk about um, conflict, It's a weird transition, but he immediately goes to talking about, and when a brother or sister offends you or sins against you, this is all Matthew 18, this is what to do in the case of serious family conflict. And he says, you know, first go to your brother or your sister, confront them, tell them how they've offended you. If they don't listen, then go get someone else to sort of mediate if they still don't listen, then involve others. And it's a, all, it's a very helpful sort of process that Jesus gives any family. For, this is how to go about doing conflict in a family setting. Then from there, he goes on to talk about forgiveness. And he says, you know, you've got to like learn how to forgive 70 times seven. And it's an intense moment. And the disciples are like, God help us, this is impossible. True is why we need God but that's the context for where two or three gather I am there with them meaning when the family is actually being unified when we're doing conflict well when we're thinking about those who are alone when we're learning how to forgive each other and actually be a family by the power of the spirit that's where Jesus is that's where his presence is most felt when we are doing the hard work of family. It's beautiful, and it is so hard. It's one of the main reasons why uh, we pray every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., because I love this church. I I dream about God's plans uh, for Grace City. We're his church. He's the head. He's the lead pastor. He's the shepherd. And I get excited thinking about what is this little family to become? I reckon it's to become a big family if we're gonna reach a lot, a lot of people, a lot of lost sheepies in Portland. <laughs> Sorry, was that I got deep. <laughs> Once in a while, I like to throw out one of those impressive theological terms. We are to become a big, big family just full of life and fun and stuff, which means we need to ask God to help us do what's otherwise impossible. Lord Jesus, help us to love each other the way you have loved us. Help us to work out conflict and not just run away offended. Help us to learn how to forgive each other. Help us to be gracious the way you've been so gracious and patient towards us. God, help us. And if you're into that, give a little plug. Come pray with us every Tuesday morning. 6 a.m. right in this little building. Come. God makes a home for the lonely. What about mission? Ephesians. Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... I love that. That's, That's where you want to get the highlighter out. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were all once not in the family, and God went looking for us. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost the ones that was all once one of us. Once you've been found, once one has been adopted into the family of God, one is compelled to share that with others. It doesn't necessarily mean we all become rabid evangelists, And go get our sandwich boards and and bullhorns and, and just go crazy wherever people do that these days. If that's your style, hey, more power to you. I'm being serious. If you can do that in love, who am I to judge? But that's gonna be the rare person, the special person. What it does mean is this though God has given each one of us a personality. A skill set, a way, a story, a history, all of these things so unique and, and, and particular to us and meant to be used in such a way that we can actually invite others who perhaps have similar stories to us to also experience the love of God in Christ. We're meant to share it with others because when you are once ostracized from God and yet found yourself on the receiving end of his love guys we've got to share it with the world and perhaps you're not a big talker Perhaps you're, I don't know how to articulate the gospel I feel like I screw it up every time I just want to say to you don't stress I used to, I used to have this mindset that if you were really serious about sharing the love of God with others then you needed to like be ready to just preach the gospel articulately and boldly, whenever, to whomever, however. And I realized, like, that's just, we're not all like that. Some of us are much better at demonstrating the gospel. It's, it's just, we're, we're better at actually living it in front of others, but not in this, like, haphazard Way that's like, well, I'll just kind of live it and you know, they'll sort of maybe hopefully get it by osmosis. No, it means some of us are going to be really good at articulating things and being able to explain things with our words, and at the same time, other parts of the body are going to be really good at actually demonstrating it, being socially responsible, loving people in a way that means like buying them burritos and feeding them. I'll never forget Burrito Jim. Have you guys heard my Burrito Jim story? Someday I'll tell you my Burrito Jim story. I just tell you, it involves about 100 burritos and even more hungry people have met. Oh, it's such an epic story, but we're going to run out of time. Some of you are born to be Burrito gyms. You're just really good at demonstrating the gospel through self-sacrificial love. And you need someone else to come along and be like, can I explain what's actually happening in this person's heart? Some of you are natural inviters. And I envy you so much because I'm like the anti-inviter. Sometimes I actually resist inviting people to church because I have this weird feeling that it has like the opposite effect. Maybe it's the natural salesman in me. People are like, why do you want me to come? What are you gonna to do to me? What's what's your angle? Others of you, you're like, hey, you want to come to church? Like, nah, you probably don't. And they're like, yeah, I want to come. Where is it? Can, can, can I pick you up? Can you? And it's just like you've got this gift of inviting people to church. I think it's it's an incredible way to invite people into a setting where they might potentially experience truth, grace, new life. In Jesus Christ. But we're all called to be on mission together. That we wouldn't just hoard family and Jesus to ourselves. We would be compelled to share it with others. And that's that's it. That's worship, family, and mission. We are a worshiping family on mission. Motivated by love, empowered by the Spirit, taking the gospel to the world in word and action so that anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus Christ. Who wants in? A hand? A hand? It's a challenging thing to, um, to get the balance. Worship family mission, And there's that sweet spot right in the middle. Sometimes we can uh, lose our way a bit. We can get in our routine. Uh, we might have our personal preferences. What happens, let's, let me just say a couple more things and then I'm going to invite the worship band up and we're going to close. But what happens when when we overemphasize maybe one or two of the categories and forget another? For example, what happens when we are a worshiping family that doesn't really care a whole lot about the world out there? What happens when we forget mission? We get bored. We forget that this is actually not about me. I think Christians who lose the desire or simply forget that we are also on mission with God. Um, we end up looking for significance in sort of other sort of spiritual novelties Like, we become more passionate about figuring out which Enneagram number I am than, like, introducing someone to Jesus for the first time. We look for ways to keep ourselves spiritually entertained. And we forget that there's a whole world out there. I was driving through our neighborhood this morning, and we're on a really narrow road like car to car, car to car, car to car. And I can't figure out why my neighbor keeps parking in front of my house. Anyway. And I was thinking, what if all of these people were to come here this morning? What if like a dozen of these people in my neighborhood on my street were to come and meet Jesus in some personal deeply profound way this morning. And and maybe they'll come back. Maybe they'll go find a church elsewhere. I don't really care because this is kingdom business here. This is not just a gray city thing. This isn't us just trying to like up our numbers thing. This is about the world that God loves so much that he sent his son to die for. And And he calls us to tell the world about A church that's really good at worshiping and family, but that forgets mission, will quickly become a bored, disillusioned group of people. We will actually make worship our mission. We will make family our mission. We will begin to use other aspects of church life as a means to an end. We'll we'll cannibalize ourselves because we don't know what to do with ourselves. What about a worshiping missional community that forgets family? We become a crowd factory. People become projects versus brothers and sisters. What about a family that's on mission but that forgets to worship God? Well, I'll let you figure that one out. Or rather, let me put it this way. Let's just worship. Can we stand together? As our worship team leads us in a time of sung worship, here's something that I'd like all of us to just think about you. this is a moment where you can like kind of pray to God in your heart where the Holy Spirit can like begin to highlight specific things maybe convict us of specific things there are areas where we all need to grow there are aspects of this vision that God has given us where where we need to mature where we need to grow up called discipleship. It's a great word. You need to grow as disciples of Jesus. Get on mission. Maybe that's something you need to like just think about more. Start taking some bold steps, talking to your neighbors, this kind of thing. Maybe worship is boring to you. Maybe you just don't understand what it is. Maybe this is just a small crowd to you, because you are terrified of family. You are determined to sabotage anyone's attempt to draw you in. Holy Spirit, we love you. We appreciate you. We adore you. Won't you search our hearts? Unearth anything, any pain, any fear, any self absorbed tendency. Bring it to the light so that we can turn away from it and embrace more of who you are. Amen. listening to Grace City, Portland.